cookies in the water. I look takes us from tilting our minds in that way that allows us to think poetically to finding a little scrap of something to developing that scrap on its own terms, even if it's not what we thought we were going to do at first. And then we really investigate that little scrap as it becomes a, a bigger song, kind of loosely explore what's pretty to us and what is interesting to us. That's Star Williams talking about her new book, How to Write a Song That Matters. I'm Jamie Green, and this is Trading Fours. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Jamie Green, and this is episode 120. Is there anything more daunting, yet also more rewarding than being creative? I'm not going to lie. I have been asked now for decades why I don't write original music, and I always tell people because it's too intimidating. I know how rare it is to be able to write a great song and how many crappy songs you have to write until you get to write a decent one. But today's guest, the great Dar Williams, who has actually written many great songs, says Peshaw to all that. For Dar, it's the process of writing the song that it is its own reward. Her new book, How to Write a Song That Matters, is a 288-page opus that details the process of how to get in the mindset and actually think of the world poetically to find inspiration to begin that process. And then she gives you helpful hints like courthouses to help you along the way. The book is great, very well thought out and laid out. If you've ever considered writing a song, this book is for you. So I'm not going to say that I'm about to write a great song, people, but what I am going to say is that I'm going to embrace the process to think poetically and begin to tap into my creative side more often. Maybe a song or two will come out of it, but it's the journey, right? Not the destination. So let's get started. Here's my really fun conversation with Dar Williams. Part of the thing is I hear other people write songs. I'm like, wow, that's just an amazing song. I could never do that kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's daunting. And I also get that it's hard work. I think people have this idea that it's some kind of epiphany that comes early. But it, it's grind. I don't know how many songwriters have told me like, oh, my first 100 songs were terrible. Or, um, mm. But I, but you you have given me like, I'm going to try it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not ready yet to <laughs> reveal anything. Uh, but I, but I'm going to try because I really enjoyed your book. I felt it was uh, very, very, uh, you did your homework. I mean, 288 pages and there's not a page that is fluff. It's all really well thought out uh, and, and step by step. And I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but uh, I guess we're, I guess we're getting started. Great. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I, I really like, there's so many quotes in this book, but I really like a song is like a stage. Everything signifies something. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? What you meant by that? Sure. The um, it's a it's a known thing on uh, theatrical stages that if you drop something, you should pick it up because you know there's a question like do does does my character stoop down and pick up the thing that's dropped or do I just let it go because it's not in the script or in our plan? And the common idea is that you pick it up because everybody associates everything with everything on a stage. So if you have a red ribbon that falls, people will say, what's the significance? And people don't even know that they're doing it. It's just that they're watching you in theater time, in theatrical time. And songs are themes. Even though they're stories, 
and even though, and actually there was a song the other day that somebody sang that was such a beautiful outpouring of emotion, and, and I was called on my sort of trying to shape that beautiful passage into something that had themes. <laughs> um, you know, you want all that raw emotion. You want all the, the beautifully observed detail. Um, but at the same time, songs are themes. Uh, and I kind of stood by that. Um, if songs are themes, then everything in that song will signify something um, to those themes. So... Um, that's, uh, and I'm just trying, you know, if, if there's a tree in, a, in the middle of a song that has to do with the field of flowers, and the field of flowers are all of the diversity of life, and you just stick a tree in there, people are going to say, okay, so what is the tree? <laughs> and that's what the, the listener's mind will most likely do. Right. Can anybody write a great song? I mean, can anybody do it? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think, you know, a, a a great friend of mine was, was really interested in hearing about the retreats. And he said, um, so what's your, do you have a favorite song that's come out of the retreat? <laughs> I said, my favorite songs are the ones that people write and they like sit back and they say, that's what I wanted to say. And everybody in the, in the room says, we get it. We, we see, you know, you've communicated with us and, um, and there have just been a lot of songs about, you know, dogs and cats and um, spouses and God, <laughs> you know, that people write and it's it's what they meant to do and it mattered to them. And it, it's, that's a great song. It really is. Sure. Well, I think, you know, I think you and I are pretty close in age. The song Bend, which was Michael Jackson recorded really young, was about a rat. Yeah, I know. Right? Right. It's a gorgeous song. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, you know, you, there's a, as you, as you saw, and I'm so grateful that you read the book. Some people pretend they did. <laughs> um, but it sounds like you, you really went through. And yeah. ideally, it takes us from, you know, kind of tilting our minds in that way that allows us to think poetically, to finding a little scrap of something, to developing that scrap on its own terms, even if it's not what we thought we were going to do at first, you know. And, um, and then we really investigate that little scrap as it becomes a, a bigger song. And, and then we kind of loosely explore what's pretty to us and what is interesting to us <laughs> to just keep us in. And, um, and then there's all sorts of ways that we can approach rhyme and language, but all in ways that, that feel right as we go step by step. And um, I guess I just trust everyone's internal process to lead them to a, a song that means something to them and that is meaningful and beautiful in some way. Yeah, it has to be authentic to themselves. Yeah, and a rat, I mean, that's a perfect, there's so many things, there are so many songs that um, we can write. And actually, what I say to people sometimes is that, you know, popularity isn't necessarily going to, isn't going to tell us if a song is great or not, because a person might really love podiatry and write mm -hmm. about their feet. And people will be like, no one has been able to sing about this, you know, really important part of my body like you have before. But that audience might be like 100 people instead of 100,000. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it still communicates. Well, you know, that's interesting because one of the songs when I was a kid, um, 
and just I don't know if it was on the radio or if it was on the jukebox or whatever uh, but Gordon Lightfoot's the Edmund Fitzgerald I was fascinated by that song I had never been to the Great Lakes I did not know you know there was no internet so I did not know this was a ship that had sank and but he he told such a great song and then I watched the the documentary and apparently it was take one was the recorded version so to your earlier point about being true to yourself and stuff like if you if you can convey that it, it, it connects to people yeah yeah and I think I mean true true to your I would say being true to your song even you know my joke about myself is that there's like 16 of us up there but um but the song will kind of dictate itself and um and there are certainly people who seem to catch on to some beautiful melodies and cadences that draw us in and have a way just like a person at a campfire of of pulling us into the story further and further and suddenly we care about this really long beautiful song about a canadian shipwreck yeah. it's like <laughs> eight minutes long yeah yeah isn't that great no, it's amazing. Uh, he's written so many great songs. It's just, it's, it's, it's um, interesting. Well, you know, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you too, which I thought it was really interesting. So I'm bored in February, Dora. Mm -hmm. I'm a February berry. And then, you know, February, you probably have been here for the Folk Alliance probably some year in February. February's not really pretty in Kansas City, but I, I love when you talked about what your, your, your use of language. And I, I'm, I wrote it down. I hope I don't butcher it that February lasts so long, it went into March. Can we talk a little bit about the importance of words and how you use them in that kind of, I mean, that's a tremendously evocative phase. And I think people instantly get what you mean by that. Well, I, because songs are themes, um, we are, uh, one of the things I specifically realized was, was showing up in people's songs that would really strike my ears is when they had a very subjective sense of time and measurement of time and definition such as you know this second lasted forever and um also just you know measurement of time would be um you know i i i walked 16 miles across that room <laughs> to go see to talk to her um so um so i think the um in february i was really checking in with what February really was to me. And it's this, you know, month you think, oh gosh, I made it through January and then there's February. And then the truth is that it really is, you know, March. And in terms of the, the themes and the feelings of this song, this is a relationship that's already kind of hit a frozen spot. And, and then to add insult to injury, the, that, that freezing thing, <laughs> the true, you know, how the truth is for that narrator is that February goes right into March. Yeah, absolutely. So the courthouses that you taught, I, I love this illustration because you have simplified something. I think, I think we've all talked about one, four, five progressions, mm -hmm. but I, I, but I love the visual of the courthouse and not only that, but when you put the little feet, I mean, I wish I could put this, you know, as an audio podcast, people are just going to have to buy the book. Uh, with the little in the snow going from courthouse stuff. So that's a great approach. I hadn't ever thought of it that way. Um, I think in a way, sometimes people make it too complicated, right? Like it doesn't have to be that complicated that you can use these standard structures underneath the chord structures, but put the melody on top of it. That's really new and amazing. Yeah. Well, actually somebody that the courthouse is, um, that one of the retreaters said, you know, wow, Dar, I've noticed you don't really go up the neck. You don't do a lot of different voicings. You don't. 
And um, and I said, well, yeah, that's the way that you know, those are the songs that come to me, or, or the, these chords that I play. And and then other people, uh, you know, with some variation, but other people from the treat sort of jumped in and they said, yes, but the use of melody on top of those chords has a lot of variety. Um, and um, and I said, thank you. <laughs> but um, the chord houses were something that happened, I think, at our, my very first retreat in 2013, where I was trying to um, make sure that nobody put the cart of music theory and the numbers of chords and sort of the beautiful mathematical um, harmony of, of music theory above their ability to write a song. And sometimes we've had guitar teachers or friends or, you know, people in bands who say you can't write a song unless you, and any time a person says you can't write a song unless you, um, it's a, we're in a kind of a danger zone. So um, I wanted to, you know, and in this case, unless you know more about how these chords hang together. The truth is, I there is something important about how chords hang together. They are in keys, and that will help you if you know the key of your song and the chords that go around it. That will definitely help you progress and develop your song. So I didn't want to throw it out the window, but I was like, you know, the keys are like houses. And every house, every chord has a mood, <laughs> like a house, and it has like two housemates, and everyone has a bunch of moods, <laughs> and you get to and you get to proceed deciding which mood fits each moment. You know, is it minor? Is it minor seventh, which is a, you know wistful but not completely sad sound? You know, which of what what interplay of moods will create your song? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wrote this quote out because I loved it at the end of the book where it said, another thing about chords, every chord can communicate a different mood, color, and transition. They're, they are wonderful in their own ways, but no one chord is better than the others except the B7. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the B7th, oh my gosh. Uh, that is, uh, it's, um, you know, I think what I would like to do is maybe grab my guitar. So here we go. This is the B7th. And this is, so, and that is a song in a lot of Beatles songs. I have a song called Time Be My Friend, and there's a transition that says, you know, time, time, I'll meet you here. Because when I thought that I was alone, you know, it just, I can't even put my finger on what that mood is. Mm -hmm. but when we talk about the moods of the, uh, in the, in the courthouse, um, it is, uh, it, it it has its own ring and <laughs> it always has. And we talk about it at the retreats, the B7 ring. But you know, if you're in the, if you're in the house of C, um, this is a C and he or she has a housemate that's an F and a G. And the C's moods can be a C or C seventh, an A minor, which is the minor that goes with it or an A minor seventh. And some of them are more watercolor, some of them are more wistful, and um, they will convey different landscapes and different moods. And we have this wonderful opportunity to, to go into those different moods to say, ooh, you know, Peter Mulvey said, I've never heard such a sad line as when you said, I'm so happy. 
<laughs> with an E minor. <laughs> I'm so happy. Um, you know, it was a it was a hard won happiness as opposed to I'm so happy. Um, and these are the things that chords give us as opposed to our feeling like we can't write a narrative until we know every name and relationship of every chord. Absolutely. Well, you know, um, I took jazz guitar lessons. I don't know when I decided to get really back into it. Mm. And we talked a lot about tension and release. And one of the things that I hear with that B7 chord, it's that tension. It needs to resolve. And Mm. as, as a musician, you probably, but a lay person doesn't know that, but they can just hear there's something there. Like it needs to go somewhere, right? It's just like, it's kind of needs to resolve to something. It's such a cool chord, especially how that, that progression that you played. You, um, you know, I think you just solved the mystery of the B7. It's just yearning to resolve. Yeah. And, and that speaks to something in us that, that wants that tension and release. Yeah. We're, we're, we are all yearning to resolve, aren't we, Dar? All Absolutely. of us. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's why music connects so much because there's that emotional component, whether, I mean, I I know early on in your book, you said you don't have to play an instrument to write music, which is true, Mm -hmm. but why music speaks to people, whether you're listening to Bach or, you know, the Beatles or whoever, is that it touches you emotionally. Mm, That is really wonderful. I think that that is the, you know, I've heard, I've heard of things basically, you know, songs just being a sort of a patterning of reality all of the all of those bits and bites you know b-y-t-e-s of of reality coming at us all the time and we find sentences literature and music and paintings that that pattern all of those bits and bites into you know things that that i think you're right that resolve uh for us that take and also bring in beautiful tensions that that mirror the tensions that we feel and then and then resolve them i think that's you just got it well good i'm glad i passed (laughs) the class well you know it's so interesting so we're in fall it's officially fall it's october and um my son my younger son is an old soul Uh, my dad was a jazz musician and 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 like big band and my younger son is way into like classic music and so he was listening to nat king cole's version of of autumn leaves Mm. And he's sitting there and stuff. And it's like, you know, it's interesting because I've heard people play it like a bossa, like, but that's one of the saddest songs on the planet, Darts. I'm, I'm pretty sure if you really think about it, it's the lover died and this is the first fall without them. Um, and the, the song's kind of sad, but man, the lyrics, if you listen to the lyrics, I mean, lyrics in tandem with chords can be really powerful, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And there's a word for it. It's called prosody. Um, and, and somebody just said very, um, in a really easy way, somebody just had these, this beautiful melody and, and, and chord progression and lyrics. And she said, oh, the prosody. And I pretended I knew (laughs) what that meant, but it's, it's just, sometimes a person can just love the way the chords and the lyrics work together to tell a story. Um, and, um, either with either the chords sort of running against or with uh, what we would expect um, to, to give um, more shading to the narrative. And, and um, so that's a, that's a wonderful gift um, that songwriting gives us. Yeah, music is, you know, there's a moment during the pandemic, you know, when we weren't performing, um, 
except online some, you know, getting back out into the, the world, doing live performance, there's just something magic about playing music live in a live room. Um, and some of it was actually done online and that's really impressive uh, that that can happen. But um, another power of music. But there was a moment that I just said, you know, music is magic, performing is magic, being with other people, playing music is magic. And I think I'm just not going to ask why. I'm just going to let it be because it's too much. It, it plays on too many, you know, chakras to, to even describe what music does. But um, although I think that you came a little close with tension and resolve <laughs> in terms of mirroring just a basic yearning in, in, in the human spirit. Yeah, I mean, this is the greatest thing about music, whether you don't know a damn thing about theory or you have a degree in music theory, you both of you can get enjoyment from it just listening to it. Well, yes, and I would say creating it um, because you can feel your way along and say, this sounds pretty. And then you can have a really great friend who says, that sounds pretty, I'm guessing, because you put this together with this and that was not, you know, you instead of going into the key that you were in, you know, the key of D, you went next door to the neighbor's house and borrowed a C. And it just, that little extra tension of going farther out of your key gave the narrative a little bit more outward reaching tension. And you go, oh, great, okay, now I know how to do it again. <laughs> and, and that's really cool. But I didn't know that when I was writing this song and I was still able to achieve that feeling. Absolutely. Um... I'm glad you picked up your guitar. I would have never had the balls to ask you to do it, but I'm glad you did because I think it, it, it's so much more effective to hear it yeah, and for thanks. us to talk about it. So okay. thank you for doing that. There's so much to unpack. I, I could spend all day with you and I actually read your other book too, which we could go down, but I'm not going to talk about it today. Did you, I really enjoyed because you had a whole thing about writing about what you know, and you start the chapter off talking about a songwriter from Oklahoma. So I'm thinking we're going to talk about Red Dirt or I think we're going to talk about tornadoes, or I think, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like those things, but what it turns out to be is about Mickey Mantle, but not Mickey Mantle's baseball playing, his relationship with his father. That's a really cool story. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that and why you use that as an example? I loved using that. Uh, Sarah, um, Sarah Pope Joy Jackson is, uh, is one of our retreaters and she is writing an album and I'm not sure where she's at with it about um, that, that, of songs that all have to do with um, Oklahoma. And um, the Mickey Mantle story that she started to play, I think already had this chorus in place, a father's love for his son, a son's love for his father, that, that juxtaposition. And, um, and then she started to describe the, um, these details. She, she told me details. She had a whole folder full of stories and details that she had put in, um, which I recommend people, people do on some level, maybe not. She really did a great job creating these folders for each of these songs. But I, I recommend that people, you know, ask themselves, where did I go? And they, if it's a song about a field, that they find their way to a field. If it's a song about another planet, that they close their eyes and they really look at the the moonscape or the, you know, the purple hills and, and the the pink spaceships, you know. Um, so she she had really... Uh, mapped out this beautiful landscape all around Mickey Mantle and and his um, childhood, and um, and then we started to look at the stories in that. And you know, the, one of the first things she wanted to sh show was the father 
um, playing baseball after work with his son. And um, so that was what we started with. Um, She mentioned that the father was working at the mines and, um, and that he, and I said, well, we should put that in because that shows that he's tired and he, and it's also showing. And then she mentioned, uh, it, it's also showing that he doesn't, you know, this is one of his ways of getting his son to move to a job that's not in the mines, um, because the mines are dangerous. And, um, she mentioned at one point that there was an, a siren that would go off, you know, perhaps daily that would signal that someone was injured or had died. And I said, I think it's a great, you know, it would be great for us to locate this song and to to really locate it in his childhood um, by talking about that siren, you know. And, and because now the siren's not just a siren, it's a theme, it's part of the, it's a metaphor, and yet it's a, and it's part of the real landscape of, of you know, that sort of death knell that you hear. And we agree that that would fit sort of showing the sacrifice of his father. His father was really tough. That fraught relationship could very well have played into the fact that Mickey Mantle had a lot of demons that followed him, and there were a lot of, you know, stories of excess and, you know, sensational stories that 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 song could have had. And I said, the sensationalism will have to serve this beautiful central core of a son's love for his father, father's love for his son. And we just kept on going through all of those stories to pare it down to showing an Oklahoma kid with an Oklahoma dad, an Oklahoma story, um, and and one that led back to, you know, the, the fierce and problematic. You know, that's fine to put in the story, um, bond and and um, journey. You know, of of this father and son. It was a perfect example to me of how when we want to write about history, we can look at this beautiful panorama of details and um, s- stories and vignettes um, and respond, you know, sometimes it's really hard to do, but to really pull out the things that are central to the, the, the spine that we've chosen. Yeah, which kind of goes to your, your, your microscope metaphor, right? Where you talked about when you were a kid in a microscope and you look, you zoom right in and you see it. And then you zoom, you, it's the same thing with a song. Like, what do you make the focus? Is it all of Oklahoma? Is it the father and the son relationship is it's Mickey's excess, like you said, right? Right. I also call that the silver key. You know, for me, when I have that one moment, when I hear that scrap, um, you know, I, um, one of the things I talked about is, is uh, during the pandemic, not knowing how, what the, the gold, the, the silver, <laughs> the silver key was into the pandemic in terms of what, how I would write about it um, until I saw a picture of um, a mountain in the Himalayas that they, that people in Northern India hadn't seen, um, for decades because of pollution, but now they could see it. That was my silver key. So I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how I was going to get into the moment of the pandemic until I saw that picture. And then I, um, I started to sing, I have seen the sacred mountain. And this juxtaposition of a person having that sacred mountain in their mind for so many years in meditation and then seeing it and then deciding, does that change my meditation? Does that mean I'm going to be meditating less and agitating more to cut pollution? (laughs) You know, that, that, you know, I've been challenged by this once in a lifetime thing. What am I going to do with that, 
I've been spiritually challenged by this. What am I going to do about it? That was my silver key. So, so history also, um, if you want to write about history, that moment when you find the silver key into the story that will open that thing up is a great and valuable moment. You know, it's really interesting. I have never thought about this since it happened, but while you were talking and describing the Himalayas, it reminded me, that's weird. I had not really, seriously, my, when 9-11 happened, my wife was on a business trip and then I was in my house alone and I was letting my dog out. And I remember looking up at the sky, you know, it was beautiful that time of year, ironically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, it's so quiet and there's no contrails because there was no air traffic. And it was like the first time in my life you know, because Kansas City is a fairly big city. We have air traffic. Oh, yeah. And it was like, it was like, wow, of all the things and kind of like with COVID, of all the things in the world that you thought could go wrong, having to be stuck in your house for two months and, you know, making sourdough bread, that was not one of the ones that was on your radar. No, right? no. That's so the question, yeah, that's, that's amazing. And that is exactly, you know, what I say is, is what, what, you know, I'm doing the songwriting retreats. I was trying to find the things that were the most helpful, the least intrusive. <laughs> but one of the things that was useful for all of us was to say, what happened? What really happened? And, you know, what happened on 9-11 is that story is a powerful story to tell. And people have really told a very direct story of of planes and impact and and death and loss. And But if what really happened to you was was that moment when you looked up in the sky and you and there was this lack of contrails and and you felt that and then you somehow tie it to 911 in terms of you know juxtaposed putting those two things you know somehow that the 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 horror of 911 is in there but you know it somehow is in relationship with this kind of strangely profound peace that you experienced that day that becomes your song and that becomes what really happened to you and it adds another nuance onto our understanding of stories of, you know, uh, of terrible catastrophes because we can have very personal um, revelations within these uh, unexpected events. You know, Howard Zinn said that, that what happened with 9-11 is, is one of the first times he really understood in, a, in, a, you know, in an American way what it was he had dropped bombs in World War II and um, it, this was his, this was American soil and to see American landmarks, you know, created a, a different story understanding and that might have been his silver key into how he had a revelation from, from that and that's what really happened to him. Yeah, I almost feel like I'm in your class now. I, you oh. know, but, but in a, <laughs> I but hope it's not a, in a, in a, no, in a good way. I mean, I, I'm serious. Like what, what a cool little epiphany to, you know, was not expecting that at all as we were talking. So I, I appreciate that very much. So, so the book is out. What kind of feedback are you getting from people, Dar? Most of the feedback um, I've gotten is, is from people I know. So it's, it's people who have gone to the retreats and, um, and they are, uh, I've heard that they like the fact that it's all in one place. You know, it's sort of like, um, you know, the retreat kind of um, lets you open up a book like this, like a suitcase, and really, you know, make it your own uh, in a in a context. So um, I think that they see it as a, a companion to their experience. But I think um, that the reviews have been what I hoped and prayed they would be, which is they've said 
this this is this will help new songwriters that you know it says it's it's a it's a solid guide for songwriters which which I'm very pleased about but they've said it's it it can also be used by new writers and I think in my mind I wanted to write the book that a person could give to their niece or nephew or their friend's neighbor who's shyly you know you just see her in her room quietly picking up her guitar and you know you can see her scrawling something in a notebook and you know she's writing songs you know like those those really new songwriters um it it has been cited as something that is a sisterly companionable guide um but also useful for for people who are starting out and another group of people who are just starting out that we get at the retreat a lot are people who promise themselves that when they had time in their careers or were retired because there is a time in our careers when we have a little bit more time and freedom to call the shots that they would write songs and they do and then and they perform them and they record them and um you know they made a promise to themselves and they're more scared than the teenagers <laughs> yeah and and just as successful it's you know the idea that 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 creativity you know runs out at some point is is a myth so um the reviews have been that this is the sisterly book i wanted it to be i think well, writing a book's really hard. I don't, you know, the Winston Churchill had this great quote about, and I'm going to butcher this quote, but it's, <laughs> to, it's something to the extent that when you start out, you have these things, but then it becomes this beast that almost overwhelms you and kills you. And at the last second, you throw it out. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I will find the quote and put it in the show notes so people can read it correctly in that one. Uh, but that's true. Like, I, you know, uh, my undergrad degree was in journalism. I actually once, just to see if I could do it, I wrote a mystery just to be like, can I... It's a ton of work, Dar. It's hard. Well, it's it's a thing that that um, ideally, yeah, it is hard to to write a book. It's it's also hard to write a song. And it's funny because I've written two books now where I think, gosh, why did I think that writing a song was so hard? You know, <laughs> this, this 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 is the this is the thing. And then I <laughs> I'm writing a song. I'm like, why did I think writing a book? I mean, I had a whole page. I could just kind of splurt it out, and you know, every, every word in this song is 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 hounding me. You know, where next? What's the crossroads? What? But it is. Um, there is. I think that you you know, with sort of tension and resolve. I think that you also kind of named what happens with journalism and and book writing for the, for the creator of, of the thing, you know, you work through these problems and that's, uh, and you don't panic. I think that that's, I said, don't panic is my, is my life motto. And my friend said, you know, that's Douglas Adams life motto. <laughs> I said, well, you know, great minds, but, um, if you don't panic then, and you keep on going and you make it pretty for you and you make it matter to you and interesting to you um that's uh you know i won't call that believing in yourself because i think there's a lot of selves there but believing in the path um you get there um as long as you you keep on telling yourself that you personally have the right to keep on going mm -hmm. well i think tenacity is a, a tremendous asset to have in your toolbox if you have it because it, it, it's being tenacious. Well, and tenacious can be, you know, tenacious can have different voices. Can, tenacious can say, do this because, you know, there's people who say, like, when you perform, just imagine the audience naked. And, you know, it's like, I don't know if I need the audience to be so vulnerable in order for me to feel less vulnerable. <laughs> so sometimes tenacity can be like, 
you know, you're going to show those idiots <laughs> and, and, you know, this kind of, I will show them. But that is, um, I think, rare. I think for me, tenacity comes from a, a very gentle coaching of myself that I can do this, that I have the right to, you know, spend my time this way, gently, loosely investigating these themes and going forward. And then I think tenacity can also come from having faith in the thing that you're writing and investing yourself and being curious about what you're writing about. So it's less about you and more about um, allowing yourself to, to go into sort of the mystery of how am I going to communicate this in the most interesting, beautiful, meaningful, resolving way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I, I just watched the Toni Morrison biography on Amazon and, 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 you know, the great Toni Morrison. And she talked about how she had to write before the sun came up. Like she had to be in that place mentally before where the world was still, there was still the possibility of the world for the day. It was really interesting, you know, mm. that everybody has to find that, to be in that place mentally to create, whether it's writing a book or a song or whatever. I think that that's a very, um, that's very daunting to me because I'm not a morning person, but I know that morning mind. <laughs> and you're the second person who's mentioned that that kind of specific clarity of that morning time. I think that's um, something I need to take seriously. But what I, um, yes, there's a kind of a, um, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about saying, um, I'll write Damon. Uh, I don't know how that's really spelled, like maybe D-A-E-M-O-N. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I'll write muse. I've, you know, she said in ancient Greece, people would say, I've shown up, uh, you know, I've shown up here with my guitar. I've shown up here with my pen. I'm going to enter into this creative space that somehow does morph into weird memories and confidence problems <laughs> and frustration. You know, I'm showing up in this space of either revelation or, you know, doom and please show up, you know, land in my room and help me. And um, if you don't believe in the daemon or the muse, I would say you can believe in the song itself and, and believe in the curiosity itself and also open our mind up to what I call poetic thinking where it's, you know, it's literally objective versus subjective. Mm -hmm. Objective is I'm going to make some toast, I'm going to make some tea. Subjective is the, the the tea the cup of tea is a metaphor is is a memory is is a whole world in and of itself and um, so one of the ways we can deal with um, uh, keeping the world young and fresh is to make those objects the subjects of our thinking just to shift um, our understanding let the world signify itself to us and open itself up to a, a poetic reality that is very resonant for us. Absolutely. You know, that's interesting because uh, when I started your book and, and, and one of the big the parts is thinking where you say, think poetically. And one of the things you say from an inspiration standpoint, like go to a museum or there was. A, so literally when I read that that morning and then I'd already had on the books with my son to go see the Art Deco display at uh, the Nelson Atkins Museum, which if you have not had a chance when you're in Kansas City, go to the Nelson Atkins Museum, please go to the Nelson Atkins. It's like one of these great, it's an unbelievably nice museum. And if you're not from Kansas City, I don't know how many people know about it. I can't wait. I love it. <laughs> but but uh, so it's all about Art Deco. And I was kind of trying to take what you were saying about it in and not just be objectively thinking about it, but subjectively, like how does this affect me and how does this make me think? And 
anyway, it was really interesting. So I, 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 I need to do that more often. I think we all do. I, it's a, you know, I had a friend who, who took me to Bhutan of all places when it was very hard to get into. And she was a Buddhist Republican. <laughs> so very, <Wow. laughs> very, um, very pragmatic and, and both skeptical and also wide open to things. And, and she just paused once and said, poetic thinking is what will save the world when, when the world cannot think poetically, um, uh, you know, when we overburden ourselves with our definitions of, of what things are and are not, and don't lighten them up and let them have a loose signifying, symbolizing, memory evoking reality, that's when we can start getting into, you know, combat <laughs> about these things. And there's plenty of reasons to, <clears throat> you know, there's a, there's a limit to, to how wide open we can be. You know, we can hyper associate so that we fear that nothing means anything, and that's not a comfortable place. But if we can get to the place where we have so many, you know, those beliefs that we fight with people over, get so personal and defensive about, and and sort of lighten them up and sort of see the different colors and nuances sort of shimmering off of them, that's that's a really interesting way to present different realities and share them. And also maybe to be a little less combative. Wouldn't that be nice? I, I think, you know, I know a lot of artists who are actually really good at handling like emotional confrontation and things like that because they, <laughs> they've had to travel on really tiny buses with each other and in vans, as you probably know. So it's like yeah. work it out, figure out how to communicate or you're off the bus. Yeah. But, um, but also because they understand that, that people come from different places and a chair represents, you know, a, a, a beloved grandmother to this one, and a chair represents, um, you know, firewood <laughs> when the when the house is freezing for that person, and um, and uh, and that that's kind of a, a wonderful thing that we all have things that make us bring out our love and our hate and our passions, um, and they can shrug sometimes and say, okay, that's 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 your thing, man. Yeah, <laughs> I love that about artists. It's interesting you talk about that. That desk, that that's, that was my grandpa's. I don't know oh, you can, oh, uh, it's beautiful. And he, and he was a carpenter, and that's and that's where he did all his businesses, writing. And there's all these buildings, houses, and Tacoma, Nebraska, which is a little town where my dad was from. But those kind of things, you need those kind of things to ground you in who you are now, and and remember where you came from. There's something that I. I... A word that I use at the end of the book, I was just trying to find, you know, resonance is a word, traction is a word, you know, everything can just be pixels to us, it, you know, it, it, and we, we invest things with meaning by reaching into memories or speculating into, into history, you know, that's the fourth dimension of time living in our three-dimensional world, that's really cool, or we can you know, make formal, um, you know, associations between things and say, wow, this, this rolled up toothpaste tube looks like an alligator, you know, <laughs> like that, that it actually, somehow the poetic reality gives our life more gravity and traction and, and investment and attachment than, you know, being very practical and not having that, that associative way of walking around the world. I love, you know, I'm sorry that the, the listeners can't see this desk because it's just, gorgeous and that could be a silver key for somebody because 
think of the worlds that came out of the work that happened at that desk, you know, and then it, it has a, a top that obviously comes down and then yep. comes back up again. So it's like you, you open up that simple, but actually beautifully crafted uh, wood uh, desk top, you bring it down, you do your work, the whole world spills out and, you know, bits of Paris and, and London and New York, you know, influence this and it goes out into the world and then you fold it right back up again. You put the world away and you go have dinner. And, you know, these things um, give us so much more meaning than just, you know, a desk. And that's why I thought, think also things are made with care by artisans. Um, people are like, yeah, my life's a little bit different with, you know, that piece of furniture in my life as opposed to the mass-produced one. Um, and that's a, that's, that's a nice uh, dove, dovetail <laughs> between, <laughs> between uh, abstract writers and, and artisans. No, that's it, it's a uh, it's great, and then uh, I mean I could talk to you all day, but I, I really want to be cognizant of your time. It's interesting what you were you're talking about that too. So my dad was the musical guy. Um, his father, who's that's his desk, was not musical at all. And I remember my dad was giving a concert in I think the Jocelyn Theater in Omaha, Nebraska, and he said, you know, was he said his dad was in the audience and stuff, and he said, but the whole time his dad is looking at the architecture. He's not paying attention to the music because to him. <laughs> That's his creative space is the building, not the music. Anyway, just... that's great. <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I hope you come to can. Are you coming to Folk Alliance next year? Or I would love to talk to you in person. I, I knew by reading your book and I'm actually, hang on, about three quarters through this one, which is good because my day job is public policy. Oh, great. Uh, in fact, I do. Uh, one of my biggest clients is NRDC. And when you were like, you, you brought up Andy Revkin. I was like, Andy Revkin, I've had him on. A seminar before you know small worlds right this is fantastic yeah he's he's a he's a oh that's the, <laughs> I, I he's a he's a very important person in my life there's actually a, a song that talks about people making their own instruments and uh, that's a reference to andy that's a specific because <laughs> yeah, he does live music jams i've seen him do those he's a monster musician he really i mean in my book i mean he's 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 backwards and forwards and he's so much about music um, and, and writing songs. And, um, so yeah, the, uh, uh, the answer is I will, I, I'll see if, uh, I'll see if Folk Alliance wants me, but I would love to, to lead a songwriting, um, workshop, uh, for with anyone who's interested. I mean, I really am trying to be a person who, um, I'm really trying to be a sit beside you person. And, um, and I think a lot of songwriting guides are trying to do that. My, my one thing is that, A, I'm a girl, <laughs> which there are very few, there are some great ones, but very few by women. Um, and, and that means less and less in some ways in this world. I mean, we are becoming a more sort of gender fluid world. But um, also, I, I have been performing for 30 years. And that, as you know, it, there's, there's a different perspective about what... Um, you know, what communicates than you might expect sitting in a classroom telling yourself what you have to do to write a song. Um, and I have a lot of that kind of looseness in my perspective that I was trying to keep, aerate the book with. Yeah. Well, I'm going to pitch something to you. So we have a great local bookstore here called Rainy Day Books. Mm. I will send on to Wendy their contact information. Maybe it's you know, you do a song seminar in the afternoon and then do a book reading that night because they have lots of 
people come in and talk and it would be, I, I would be fascinated. I would be fascinated too. That would be great. We're, we're building up our folder of stuff right now of, of places and, um, and, uh, and also kind of the trifecta that I've really enjoyed is performing, leading songwriting stuff, and then talking about the book. And I'm going to be at a, organizing a um, thing in Ponca City, Oklahoma, um, in November <laughs> because um, to talk about the, what I found in A Thousand Towns. So, um, so I'm, I'm always happy to come to bookstores to kind of do a mix and match um, and rainy day books sounds awesome. I mean, you know, that's my kind of bookstore. Oh my gosh. Um, I have to keep, I have a bazillion. David McCullough, I've seen him, Ian Rankin, the mystery writer, Jimmy Carter came a, a bazillion. I mean, it's like our greatest asset in this town is what I would say. Is this Kansas city, Missouri? Well, right. You know, cause we're bifurcated, right? right. Uh, it's on the Kansas side, barely. I mean, if you stood on the, on the rooftop, it would be, it's in Fairway, Kansas, but you could see Missouri. I mean, it's right on the border. It's a that's, cute little bookstore. That's fantastic. I mean, I, I, good for Kansas City, Kansas, you know, because Kansas City, Missouri is always like, always has the funky stuff. And then, and Kansas City uh, is, Kansas is, you know, sort of more successful and more, you know, it's like that, the Twin Cities. But what's interesting is that sometimes, um, whether it's Tampa, St. Pete, or Minneapolis, St. Paul, the one that's seen as more sort of laced up, you know, buttoned up in business um, is kind of in the shadow and some artists sneak in there and it becomes overnight the, the cool, the cool one. And it switches back and forth. St. Yeah. Pete is like the place right now. And um, St. Paul is sort of has this whole thing going on. So um, I'm sure that this is the same with Kansas, the two Kansas cities. Yeah. Um, but back in the day, you know, if you wanted a gig, you went, to, you looked at the Kansas City, Missouri side to find the, the concert venues. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, uh, last question. Uh, so I, I do a theme every year. This is my third year of the podcast. I'm asking everybody this because it's, it's kind of selfishly. I'm trying to build up my, I have a huge vinyl collection. Why not make it even more? But what's a vinyl album that I probably don't have in my collection, Dar, that I definitely need to have in my vinyl collection? I'm going to say two. Okay. One I never had on vinyl, but I think would really live, and you probably actually have it, which would be Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder. I have Stevie Wonder, but I don't have Inner Visions, so I will put that on the list. So it's good. It's so uh, such a rich, the rich harmonies, the rich instrumentals. It's just such a rich musical uh, record. And then there's almost sort of this tactile, poetry like this all of the 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 narrators and the songs i think inner visions would be really spectacular on vinyl and you know another one is um the mamas and the papas uh if you believe your eyes and ears or can you believe your eyes and ears or (laughs) um here let me look it up so i do this right all right (laughs) (laughs) i haven't seen it in vinyl since it was at my parents house um the second album is The Mamas and the Papas, If You Can Believe Your Eyes and Ears, because they had such incredible harmonies and such incredible um, instru- you know, music. Everything was just because it was the 60s and they didn't have electronic tuners, and because of the, the different um, tones of their voices, there's a lot of harmony, but there's a little creakiness. It's not... It's not 
tight, 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 you know, 21st century Broadway harmony and the warmth that comes from the fact that there's a, just a little bit of give in, in a lot of those notes creates a honey-like uh, richness to, you know, mellifluousness to um, the music. And vinyl, I think, is the best way to, to bring out that, that, you know, you can just feel that, that honeyed richness uh, on vinyl. Absolutely. All right, here you go. See if you agree. Writing a book is an adventure. To begin with, it is a toy, then an amusement, then it becomes a mistress, and then it becomes a master, and then it becomes a tyrant. And in the last stage, just as you're about to be reconciled to your servitude, you kill the monster and fling him to the public. <laughs> There's some things <laughs> that I do. <laughs> that is true for me only insofar as sometimes I think, I'm done, and this is either, you know, the worst thing I've ever done or, or will really hit its mark. Let me throw it out to the world and, and see what they think. It could be a monster because it's so much its own thing. But the problem is that the songs, uh, a song called When I Was a Boy, which was written before a lot of sort of this whole gender movement started, but was about sort of my experience feeling not like a boy, but, you know, as a boy, and that speaks to boys being girls, you know, some boys feeling like girls when they're young. That launched my career. There's a song called As Cool As I Am that I thought was going to sound really petty and jealous, even though it says, I'm not so petty, as cool as I am. Um, I thought, no, it sounds really defensive. That further launched my career. So the ones that feel the most sort of, uh-oh, I'm just going to fling it out there um, because it, it could be, um, it, it could really, it could be a, a bit of a bomb that reflects back on, you know, a mud bomb that splatters right back on me. Those are the ones that people say, wow, how did you know? No one's ever written about this before, you know? And um, so it's worth um, flinging a few monsters. I, I wouldn't say they all feel that way though. That's amazing. It's been so much fun. I, I really appreciate it. I've loved all your books. I look forward to seeing you in person and I really appreciate the time. This is great. I, I, you, will, you will be the reason I'll come and visit. Thanks so all much. All right, thanks, Star. Take care. Someone should help me Need to find a nice man to walk me home When I was a boy I scared the pants off of my mom Climbed what I could climb up Dar Williams, everybody. Again, the book is called How to Write a Song That Matters. It's out. And yeah, I read it. I, you know, I, I think you owe it to the artist to be prepared for the interview. So if you've got a book that uh, we're going to talk about, I'm going to read the whole book. That's how I roll. Uh, I like reading. Actually, I love reading. Uh, so thanks so much to Dar. Down in the show notes, how to buy the book, her website, all that good stuff. Please check it out. Uh, real quick, I want to apologize. I, you know, with people wearing masks for two and a half years one of the really nice uh, side benefits was there weren't colds uh, but we have a killer cold that is running through the green household and you can probably tell from my voice i'm just now getting better i got it from my son of course and now i've given it to my wife because that's how we roll <laughs> my poor wife uh, anyway so that's it for this week one week from today uh, music nerds, music nerds unite, bird streets, 
I know a lot of you know all about Bird Streets. Uh, John Brodeur is zooming in from London. We're talking about his brand new Bird Streets album. Really excited for that. And for the double nerds, you will know that Michael Lockwood produced the new Bird Streets. Jason Faulkner produced the first Bird Street. So we have a lot to talk about. That is one week from today. Until then, go out, support live music, write a song. We'll talk real soon. Bye-bye. But I am not Except when I'm being cut off, God, I've had a lonesome, awful day. The conversation finds its way to catching fireflies out in the backyard. And so I tell the man I'm with about the other life I live. And I say, now you're talking, I have lost and you have won. And he says, oh, no, no. When I was a girl, my mom and I, we always talked, and I picked flowers everywhere that I walked. And I could always cry, now even when I'm alone, I seldom do. Just like me